Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today marks six months since that massive fire burned through the town of Lahaina in West Maui. 100 people lost their lives, and more than 10,000 lost their homes. Many survivors are still being temporarily sheltered in hotels. Deutsche Welle, a German news outlet, reports that some survivors staying in hotels have moved up to eight times. Reporter Kanchi Moa spoke with survivor Pakalana. She's been staying at a hotel with her husband and eight children. She says they keep their things in containers in case they have to move the next day. Because you just don't know where you're going to go next. So these are perfect because like, if we end up on the beach, you know, the sand, it'll protect it from the sand and the water. Pakalana has accepted that she lost everything a family house of four generations in Lahaina, but she assures that the uncertainty of not knowing where she will be living next is much worse. Almost everyone in Lahaina is trying to deal with that same issue, is where we're going to live, where we're going to raise our kids, where they're going to move us, how am I going to get to work, how am I going to get my kids to school if they move me to the other side of the island. Her husband was born and raised in Lahaina and works here. She is a stewardess. Like most Lahaina residents, they don't want to leave the West Coast, their home, but many have already been forced to leave Maui. Um, I know they've been asking for volunteers to move off island um, to maybe outer islands. Um, A lot of family and friends have moved to the mainland. I have a real estate friend in Las Vegas who sold five homes to Maui families within the last couple weeks. And so we're starting to see a huge exodus of Lahaina people coming out of Lahaina because there's no place to live. That is Lahaina fire survivor Pakalana speaking with Deutsche Welle's Kanchi Moya. That's an almost 20-minute piece, and you can find it at yourcallradio.org. Hawaii Governor Josh Green planned to reopen areas of West Maui to tourism on October 8th, exactly two months after the fire. The move came despite widespread pushback from wildfire survivors who felt their basic needs were being sidelined in favor of the tourism industry. The grassroots organization Lahaina Strong collected over 15,000 signatures to petition the governor to delay the reopening until certain benchmarks like childcare and reliable shelter could be guaranteed to residents. Governor Green argued that the return of tourism was crucial to the economy of Maui and went ahead with the reopening. To ensure the needs of residents could no longer be ignored, Lahaina Strong led an occupation of Kanapali Beach in West Maui in full view of the tourists staying in the hotels along the beachfront. The protesters call the movement Fishing for Dignified Housing in reference to protective Native Hawaiian cultural rights that ensure access to shorelines for fishing. These rights allowed protesters to stay on the beach 24-7. They set up tents as shelter and a 100 Hawaiian flags across the beach in honor of every life lost in the Lahaina fires. Lahaina Strong plans to stay on the beach until lawmakers come up with a long-term housing solution for people displaced by the fires. They're calling on Maui Mayor Richard Bisson to convert short-term rental properties into long-term housing. So move the tourists out of the short-term rentals into the hotels and then move those who lost everything into stable housing. On today's Your Call, we'll talk about the solutions Lahaina residents are seeking and the long history of activism led by Native Hawaiians to protect Native lands and restore water rights throughout Hawaii. As the recovery efforts move ahead, what will it take to ensure lawmakers put people over profits? Joining us today are two guests. Lahaina resident Jordan Ruidas is founder of Lahaina Strong. She founded that in 2018 after another wildfire burned 21 homes in Lahaina. Jordan raised close to $200,000 in community donations to help her neighbors rebuild, which inspired her to start Lahaina Strong. She started the petition to delay West Maui's reopening, and she's a key organizer of the Fishing for Housing protest. Hi, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Aloha and good morning. Good morning. Elena Bryant is a Native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice who focuses on the restoration of water rights. Earth Justice is a nonprofit public interest environmental law organization. In August, Elena wrote how Maui's wildfire sparked a disaster capitalist power grab for Hawaii's public water. An Earth Justice article about how the privatization of water by colonial powers turned Lahaina into a desert. Hi, Elena. Thank you so much for joining us. Aloha, thanks for having me. Well, Jordan, I, I want to start off with you just to watch that Deutsche Welle report and others to actually see the devastation. I mean, it's just so sad to see what happened to Lahaina. I, I just wonder, this is the second fire that you've been through. Um, what have yes. the last six months been like for you and your community? Um, absolutely devastating. Um, we're, we're worn down. Our people are living in uncertainty every single day. Cleanup has begun, um, I think about two months, two weeks ago. So that's good. It's giving the people hope that they'll be back on their lands soon. But it, it's been really rough. Is there any way to know, given that 10,000 people lost their homes, is there any way to know how many people are in hotels? How many people are in rentals, living with family, have moved off the island? Any idea? Um, so we have a little bit of an idea. There was rough, there was almost 11,000 that were displaced after the fires. And just a few weeks ago, I got a number from a county council member. And the latest was roughly 5,900 were still in hotels. Wow. So I would say probably still around 1,000. I mean, sorry, 5,000. So that's a lot of people. I think what struck us listening to Pakalana and others, they say that any day they could open their hotel room and get an eviction notice. So they have no idea how long they'll be able to stay in those hotels? No, it's very uncertain. And um, there's even some instances where um, they go to the Red Cross that morning. Everything's okay. They go back to the room, go about their day. And then a couple hours later, they say, oh, you got to leave. And they're they're like, hey, I talked to you this morning. It's all good. And oh, things change. And it's it's really hard because the turnover of workers with Red Cross and FEMA, with them being volunteers, it's, it's difficult. So you start to make a connection with your Red Cross head and then they switch the workers out and you have to retell your story and retell, you know, everything you're going through and connect and make this connection again. And then they switch again. So it's been a really difficult process. Wow. And to think that someone like Pakalana keeps their things in containers in case they have to go to the beach the next day. Correct. People are living out of containers and suitcases. So for a while, uh, when we knew that we were having big move out dates from these hotels, we asked, you know, the the uh, visitors coming down to our fishing for housing, they said, Oh, how can we help? And I said, if you guys can leave a suitcase behind, that would be, that would be amazing because these people are living out of those, not knowing when they're going to have to leave or where they're going to go next. Jordan, given that you have been through two wildfires, if Mm -hmm. you can tell us what happened in 2018 and what did officials learn from that? What, what had changed after that? (laughs) So 2018, we were expecting um, a tropical storm, Hurricane Lane. And what we got was a ravaging fire um, with extreme winds, very similar to what we just saw in 2023. And the potential for that fire to take our town was definitely there. And I, I talked to some firefighters back in 2018, and they said that it was something they've never experienced, and they thought they were going to die that day. Mm -hmm. And just... um, looking at 2023 now and what had happened, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that the elected officials back then in 2018, they did not listen to our pleas and our cries. And here we are just five years later and we lost everything. And just to give people a sense of what was lost. I mean, if people have not seen the video by now, it's just, it's utter devastation. It really is. Everything is, um, everything in Lahaina town is leveled. Mm. Um, everything that I've grown up knowing is, is gone. Um, and pretty much what we have left is Kaanapali up to Kapalua. And there was a study done and 87% of that is short-term rentals. That leaves 13% of the housing for everybody in Lahaina. And so that's where we're struggling right now. Gosh, I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with this again. What is the relationship like now? I mean, we'll talk about the history, but what is the relationship like today between 
activists and the politicians who are going to make these very important decisions? When the fire first started, um, there was a lot of mistrust um, between activists and or just the regular, you know, um, community members with the government. With them not coming into Lahaina until I would say four, five, six days in, we already kind of pulled together, figured out what we needed. We had supplies coming in from Molokai, Oahu on boats, private boats. And then the government came in. So there's a lot of mistrust, a lot of letdown. Mm-hmm. Um, now moving into, you know, legislative session and all that, um, we, we're, really, we're really clinging to the ones that are hearing us out and begging them to please make the correct changes to help the people. Elena, this mistrust is is not new. The question of whether lawmakers will put people over profits is not new. The question around tourism over locals is not new. But the Lahaina fires really put a spotlight on these issues. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it most certainly did. Um, You know, looking at the history of privatization of water in Hawaii, um, you know, in traditional Hawaiian society, water was a public trust resource and one that couldn't be commodified or reduced to physical ownership. And it was managed as a resource for the benefit of the community. But through years of extractive plantation diversions and the displacement of thousands of Native Hawaiians who relied on that source of water um, but were cut off, you know, we've, uh, these plantations had have become land and water barons and and now are defunct and their corporate successors are transitioning from plantation monocropping to developing luxury um, homes. And and so there's this continual struggle um, for water that is supposed to be managed for the benefit of all of Hawaii's people. As you write in the piece you wrote for Earth Justice, you give very important historical context You write that the water for the landscaping, the golf courses, the pools, the decorative fountains for these new developments was water previously used to irrigate sugar and pineapple. That is the water taken from Hawaiians, sometimes by force, by plantation barons a century earlier. Can you talk about why it is so important to go back in history and why the context here is so crucial? Yeah, I think it's important to understand, you know, how we got to the situation that we did today. Um, The Lahaina wildfire was a result of hundreds, you know, over a hundred years of outright water extraction and, you know, drying of natural riparian corridors that would have provided for, for fire suppression. And Throughout the Hawaiian Kingdom, you know, provisional government, even into Hawaii's territorial period, these agricultural plantations increased their influence over water management and came to control a large portion of Hawaii's water resources. And this economic control by a handful of large landed American businessmen led to the desire for overt political control and a coup that eventually led to the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. So at the turn of the 20th century, Native Hawaiians face a rolling mass extinction due to the introduction of foreign diseases, economic invasion, political coup, and widespread displacement that was happening around the same time. And it wasn't really until statehood that the legal landscape in Hawaii changed because after statehood in in 1959, judges were appointed locally instead of being chosen from Washington, D.C. as they were during the territorial period. And so this provided for judges that were better versed in local laws and issues, including Hawaiian custom and tradition. And this provided a foundation for, for Hawaii's common law and a reaffirmation that Hawaii's water resources are held in trust and should be managed for the the benefit of present and future generations. Can you tell us more about how a Hawaiian, a native Hawaiian approach to these issues, to land and water use, differs from the colonial capitalist approach you really lay out in your piece? 
Yeah, um, certainly. You know, as described by Native Hawaiian scholar Lili Kalakama Ilehiva, um, Native Hawaiian identity is derived from the Kumulipo, which is the cosmogonic genealogy or creation story, if you will, of the Native Hawaiian people. And its essential lesson is that every aspect of the Hawaiian conception of the world is related by birth. And as such, all parts of the Hawaiian world are one indivisible lineage. And in this creation story, Native Hawaiians are literally and figuratively born of the land. The land, and specifically the staple crop of the Hawaiian people, the, the kalo or taro plant, um, are the elder siblings of the Hawaiian people. So in traditional Hawaiian society and across Polynesia, it's the duty of the younger siblings to honor and serve their elders. So Native Hawaiians pattern their behavior and specifically their attitudes toward land after this genealogical relationship. And it's this relationship that really defines the Hawaiian relationship to land. It wasn't a commodity to be exploited. It was an ancestor that's respected and cared for and who, in turn, cares for us. How would you say officials are responding to this now that it's getting so much, really more attention than possibly ever? Because the fire really, again, a spotlight is being shown on these issues. And you've got major media now writing about these issues, interviewing people like you to get the word out about these issues where, you know, as before, I mean, not to simplify it at all, but a lot of people just don't know the history of this. It's to a lot of tourists, Hawaii is this gorgeous place and they really don't know about the history of what you're, you're discussing here. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's not readily apparent to, the average visitor, you know, that Hawaii is in a water crisis, you know, given the lush landscaping and the multiple pools and, you know, the water fountains that are prominent at, you know, the the resorts and hotels across our state. But the fact of the matter is Hawaii is in a water crisis and climate change is only contributing to, to that problem. And the Lahaina wildfire situation really shed a light on how much politics have come to influence water policy. Mm. Elena Bryant is a native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice who focuses on the restoration of water rights. You can read her piece, How Maui's Wildfire Sparked a Disaster Capitalist Power Grab for Hawaii's Public Water at yourcallradio.org. We're also joined today by Lahaina resident Jordan Ruidas, who founded Lahaina Strong in 2018 after another wildfire burned 21 homes in Lahaina. Jordan raised close to $200,000 in community donations to help her neighbors rebuild, which inspired her to start Lahaina Strong, and she started the petition to delay West Maui's reopening. She's a key organizer of the Fishing for Housing protest. If you have any questions for our guests about what is happening in Lahaina and and also just in Hawaii, because these issues uh, are a lot of people are talking about them on every island, not just Maui. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. We'll talk more about the politics in a minute, but to go back to all of the people who've been displaced Jordan, I mean, everybody has a story. What, what are you hearing six months after this fire? What, what are people demanding at this point? Um, sadly, we're demanding the same thing we were demanding before the governor opened for tourism. We're still demanding for long-term dignified housing for the people. We're still demanding um, safe schooling options for our keiki. Um, still demanding, um, you know, even just daycare options. There's nothing on the West side. Even for me, I have a, she makes four months today. And even if I, you know, did want to return to uh, my, my tourism job, I'm not able to because I don't have anybody to um, provide childcare for me. So unfortunately, we're still demanding the same things we were months ago. Where, where are kids going to school? Um, they did reopen the schools in uh, some of them, Princess Nahi Ena Ena and um, Lahaina Intermediate and the high school up which are on Lahaina Luna above the burn zone, um, their re-enrollment numbers are actually pretty low. A lot of parents don't feel comfortable um, sending their kids back to school in that area, being so close to the burn zone. Um, they do have air monitors, um, but you just never know. So a lot of parents don't feel safe. Um, 
a few weeks after the fire, schools on the other side of the island, which are 45 minutes to an hour drive out, opened up their doors um, for enrollment. So a lot of parents um, put their kids in other schools and now they're spending their days dropping their kids off and waiting around and picking them up because it's, you know, it's it's pretty far from Lahaina. Mm. What about mental health issues and PTSD? I mean, it was devastating to read the stories about people who jumped in the ocean mm-hmm. and were in the ocean for hours just waiting to be rescued. I mean, you can't even imagine. What are you mm-hmm. hearing from people about just how they're coping? Um, they're trying every day to hold on. And just this past week, we've had really bad winds and all over social media, I see people just saying, I feel triggered. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope there's not another downpour that starts a fire. Even the, I didn't even, I didn't even lose my house. I didn't even see with my own eyes, um, you know, what happened in Lahaina like others did. And just the other night, I had my own nightmare. So I can't even imagine the people who were having to jump into the ocean and waiting for hours. And my other half, he's actually a um, ocean safety lifeguard. And they sent them down into Lahaina the very next day. And he, him, him and his buddy, they picked up the last woman on mm-hmm. that rock wall that was left there. And wow. that she was there overnight, you know. So it's, it's absolutely, um, it's horrible. Mm. Ugh. Are there mental health resources available? There are. And, you know, the, the county is really trying hard now to um, to put more out there. But a lot of it at first was a lot of outside organizations like um, church groups and stuff like that coming in and um, offering their services. And now we have like Maui Behavioral. They come down to um, our our occupation at Kanapali Beach every Tuesday and Thursday and just sit there. And if anybody wants to come down and talk, they're there. But for a while, there wasn't much. And we talked as a group as Lahana Strong, what can we do? And I think, you know, just days after the fire, me starting the Lahana Strong Facebook group for the survivors, I think that's just been a real help, um, a real safe space for people to just kind of vent their frustrations on there and or ask questions. So, um, it's, it's starting to ramp up, but it's sometimes people feel it's a little too late. What about children? How are they processing all of this? Uh, I, I really feel for the children. I feel like they've been taking the brunt of things. And, you know, then they're so innocent. They don't really understand. A lot of them asking their parents, when can we go back home? Why are we living, you know, on the other side? Why can't I go to school? And it's making it really difficult for these parents because, um, a lot of us, we don't even have the answers because we're not getting the answers from our government, unfortunately. And that's what's leading to a lot of mistrust is the they're not coming to us with answers and or solutions. And so we're just um, having to show up to all these different meetings. And it's it's really exhausting. And these people are having to check in with Red Cross every 48 hours and then check in with FEMA and then their SBA loans and go to another meeting because they, they're hoping that there's going to be more information. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the children... The ones going to school, um, I think it's good for them to be together with their with their um, with their friends. Um, but when there's wins, like how I said, we're, we've been having some some teachers reach out saying the kids are absolutely terrified mm. being in school where the fire was and having wins that could cause you know cause another fire. So it's 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 hard. It goes back and forth, you know. Right. Well, let's hear from a caller before we go to break. Let's go to Greg mm-hmm. in Palo Alto. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. You know, I wonder if your guests, I don't know if they've touched on this yet, but um, given the fact that global warming and climate change are going to get worse, and I pointed out to Kevin that uh, a recent, just a report that came out within the last few days that the World Meteorological Organization indicated that uh, I think last year was the hottest year on record, and it was the first time that 1.5 degrees had been exceeded either for the entire year or for extensive periods of time. So if this continues to get worse before it gets better, if it does get better, what in the heck is Hawaii going to do to get water? They've had problems in the past. Well, thank you for that, Greg. And and so you're right. Just yesterday, we got war. Well, actually, I'm reading from the BBC from a report eight hours ago. For the first time, global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius across an entire year, according to the EU's Climate Service. World leaders promised in 2015 to try to limit the long-term temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is seen as crucial to help avoid the most damaging impacts. Well, we've we've now exceeded it. So Elena, gosh, this is a big question in terms of water and the islands. 
what, what are your thoughts given the, 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 the serious, given what we face with climate change? Yeah, you know, we're really seeing climate change induced drought conditions and projections of significantly less rainfall in many areas across our state. So concerns over water availability is front of mind with a lot of communities asking, you know, how much more water use can we sustain and at what cost? And I think this is something that our state legislature continues to grapple with and then our policymakers and, um, you know, unfortunately, tourism is a great example of how it can um, impact water availability for locals. You know, a, a report done in 2020 revealed that Maui's top water users, unsurprisingly, were hotels and resorts. And Maui's biggest customer, Grand Wailea, which is a 40-acre resort in South Maui, was using 1,250 times more water than the average family home. Mm-hmm. And so while resorts and hotels are encouraged to conserve water, Maui residents are increasingly being placed under mandatory water shortage restrictions, preventing them from using water for irrigation, for lawns, for washing cars. You know, they're prohibited from water usage during certain hours or days of the week, subjected to increased water shortage rates. And if they fail to comply, you know, they face a $500 fine for each violation. And this really leads to increasing frustration towards the the tourist in the industry and a feeling that residents are being treated like second-class citizens in their own homeland. And higher water rates and heavier use restrictions are on the horizon for Maui residents because demand continues to outpace supply. And in light of these persistent drought conditions, you know, this is something we're seeing across Hawaii. Well, thank you for the question, Greg. We're going to take a quick break. Today, we are talking about What is happening six months after the devastating fires destroyed Lahaina? Many survivors are still struggling to find stable housing. They are asking officials to transition short-term Airbnb properties into long-term housing for Maui residents and to pause tourism to give people more time to grieve. Elena Bryant is a Native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice who focuses on the restoration of water rights. Jordan Ruidas is founder of Lahaina Strong. She founded that organization in 2018 after another wildfire burned 21 homes in Lahaina. She started the petition to delay West Maui's reopening, and she's a key organizer of the Fishing for Housing protest. So you may have seen video of this. A number of people have set up tents uh, as shelter and 100 Hawaiian flags on the beach in honor of every lost life in the Lahaina fire. And this is in full view of the tourists staying in the hotels along the beachfront. They want to protect Native Hawaiian cultural rights that ensure access to shorelines for fishing. Well, they reference that. That's why they're able to stay there 24-7. But they have a number of key demands that you're hearing on today's show. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we are talking about the Lahaina wildfires six months later. Survivors are still struggling to find stable housing. If you have any questions or comments for our guests about the work they do, about what is happening in Lahaina, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. If you are a visitor to Hawaii and you have a question, about tourism or Hawaii's history, how to be a responsible tourist. I mean, no judgment. These conversations, I think, are very, very important. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can email your call at kalw.org. Today, we're joined by Elena Bryant, a Native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice. Jordan Ruidas is the founder of Lahaina Strong. Can we talk a little bit about the politics of Hawaii? It's controlled by Democrats, just like California. We've got a wider range of Democrats here in California. I wonder what it's like in Hawaii. Uh, Jordan, do you want to take that first? Yes. I mean, I'm I'm pretty new to politics. I've been voting, but this is what I'm... Only after this fire, I've taken a a deep dive into things. And, you know, we get a lot of um, comments on social media saying, you know, you guys should have voted Republic and all that. But to be honest, um, Ah. we're at where we're at and we're trying to make do with what we have. And um, if we feel like 
things need to change, that's where we're going to ramp up and we're going to we're going to push for change this next election. Because you all have been very involved with various bills coming out of the legislature. You've got so much information on your Lahaina Strong Facebook page. Yes, definitely. And um, it's it's kind of crazy because a lot of these bills, um, they're just they're using the wildfires to slip their own things in there. So what we did is we did a big search of anything that said wildfire, anything that said water, you know, and we're, we're just, we're tracking all of them because we don't want anything bad to slip by us. Um, but yeah, there's a lot going on and the conversation is definitely around the Maui wildfires. Right. Elena, what can you tell us about the politics of Hawaii, given that it is controlled by Democrats? You know, I'm not so sure if it if it's a you know Democrat versus Republic issue uh, more so than it's a small elite group um, that is influencing um, politics. You know this whole situation in Lahaina it was outright disaster capitalism. Large landowners exploiting the wildfire tragedy to push through backroom policy moves that benefited the wealthy and affluent elite. You know, the short answer is that they use this profound human tragedy as their window to roll back hard-won grassroots victories for water rights that took, you know, over 150 years in the making. And in response to you know, a simple letter from West Maui Land Company, the governor and the chair of the Water Commission removed a civil servant who posed as a political inconvenience to their pro-developer agenda. And, you know, as a whole, the wildfires really resurfaced and intensified the historical justices over West Maui's water resources. How much power do Native Hawaiians, locals, I mean, people who've lived there for many, many years and truly care about these issues, how much power do they have in the the political system in Hawaii, given the power that we know the developers, the hotels, the landowners have? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, um, there was a movement on Hawaii Island in relation to a proposal to build a 30 meter telescope mm-hmm. that really, I think, alerted the native Hawaiian community and caused the community to become engaged and more so than, you know, than what was previously done. And now the community is alert and they're watching and, you know, they're educated and organized. And so I think that, you know, the Native Hawaiian community um, is mobilizing and is definitely um, involved in the the bills and the legislation that's being proposed this session and calling out our leaders when, you know, they do things um, to drive, you know, the pro-developer agenda. What legislation are you specifically tracking that would impact residents? So there's a very important bill that's making its way through our state legislature right now. Um, It's Senate Bill 3327, which relates to our state water commission on water resource management, which is the agency that administers our state water code and is tasked with, um, among other things, protecting the water resources of Hawaii and ensuring the availability of fresh water for generations to come. And what this bill does is it takes the politics out of our water policy um, by restructuring the leadership. Uh, you know, the leadership of this water commission. So it passed its first committee hearing yesterday. Uh, 225 pages of testimony were submitted for this initial hearing with very, only a very small handful, I think three in opposition. Um, But it would reduce the political influence on the commission by the governor and his political appointees. It would increase penalties for violators of the water code so offenders actually comply with things like minimum flow standards and groundwater pumping limits. And it would reaffirm the commission's obligation to prioritize public trust uses in, in the water use permitting process to give cover to commission staff that are actually trying to do their job bringing law to life in our communities, but are constantly under pressure from the likes of West Maui Land and Company and other um, private developers and commercial interests. So this is a long overdue bill. Um, It was actually 
proposes recommendations that were made by a review commission in the in 1994 um, and sat, you know, until the introduction of this bill. Um, but it's crucial to getting Hawaii um, Hawaii's water management back on track. Yeah, we're getting uh, quite a few emails actually about water in Hawaii, and you can read Elena's piece uh, that she wrote for Earth Justice on our website, and it really goes into the history of how we got to, of how they got to this place. It's called "How Maui's Wildfire Sparked a Disaster Capitalist Power Grab for Hawaii's Public Water." We're also receiving a few emails from listeners who want to know what it means to be a responsible tourist. So obviously this is getting so much attention. It's it's not new. How much tourism should there be? Um, So many questions around this, Jordan. What are your thoughts, given what has happened to Lahaina, about what it means to be a responsible tourist? Right now, what we feel it means to be a responsible tourist is to come come with the right intentions. Um, Be ponal, which is, you know, Come correct. Do what is right here. Please don't ask us questions. Um, you know, stay out of the places that you're not supposed to be in. We have a real bad problem of tourists walking into the burn zone um, when they're not supposed to. And it's really disrespectful. I don't think people realize that, um, you know, those hundred lives lost and there's still a couple more that are missing. Those are people's friends and families and um, they perish in our town. So when people walk through and, you know, do stuff like that. They might not realize, but it's really hurtful and disrespectful. But just come and come talk story with us. And just like we, the people, have shown you folks aloha for years and years and years, we're just asking that you guys come and you guys show your aloha back to us and kind of just be on ohana and um, just just give us grace while we go through this, this uncertain time. What is the best way to support local people, local restaurants, local businesses, to ensure that the business stays in the community and it also just spreads goodwill because you're actually, you know, supporting people who live in this place. Definitely. Yeah, definitely try your best to shop local. We we love when people do like the farmer's markets and stuff like that. Um, and even, you know, volunteer opportunities, Maui Humane Society, they, their kennels are at capacity. They're not even able to take any more animals. So they're asking people to just come and, you know, walk, walk a dog around the area to get them out of the kennel. We have um, two locally um, started hubs, which is Na Aikane o Maui and Napilinoho that are still um, serving the people. They accept volunteers there. And then there's also um, a county hub. So I, I just say come and get plugged in and you know, just like I said, try and stand by us while we, we're, we're dealing with all of this. Hmm. Elena, anything to add about what it means to be a responsible tourist? Yeah, no, I think um, Jordan answered fabulously. I would I would just add, you know, there's so many organizations that hold um, regularly hold community work days to restore our traditional agriculture and aquaculture systems. And, you know, they're always looking for volunteers. I've been on a, you know, a bunch where, you know, we've had tourists come and, and join and work alongside the community to restore these really important systems that will help increase Hawaii's food sustainability. Um, you know, I know a problem, especially with um, social media is, you know, a lot of times, Tourists go to these really special and and sacred places for for Native Hawaiians, and you know they geotag it, and you know it's all over, and so it kind of it mm-hmm. it gets out of control, um, and so you know part of I think coming with the right intentions and and really respecting you know the place and and the community is you know to to maybe not do it in that way, um, you know, come be present, enjoy. Um, but you know, some, some things I think are, are better, you know, left off of social media. Right. And, and some places are better not to visit also. Yes. Today we are talking about the Lahaina wildfires six months later. So many survivors still do not have stable housing. We talked about this earlier, but sadly, some people are leaving the islands. Some people are staying in hotels and are wondering if they're going to be kicked out tomorrow and then what. There's issues around water, of course, around short-term rentals. What does the future hold for housing? We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments for our guests, 866-798-8255. 
Elena Bryant is a Native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice. Jordan Ruidas is the founder of Lahaina Strong. Let's talk about that other call to action, Jordan. So many of you are calling on the mayor to Mm -hmm. come up with long-term housing solutions. So you want to convert. There's just so many, of course, short-term rental properties on all of the islands. You want Mm -hmm. that to be converted into long-term housing. So move those tourists out of the Airbnbs into the hotels and then move people who've lost everything into stable housing. I mean, this is a problem on the big island, other islands. What sort of response are you receiving from politicians on this demand? Um, from the mayor himself, um, he, he's, he looked into it when we first brought it to his attention. Um, and it, he, he even said himself, it's not an inventory issue. We have the inventory here. It's just being used for short-term rentals instead of long-term housing for the people, you know. Um, it really seems like the county is looking to the state to do this and we've seen josh green say that he's gonna drop his hammer he said mid-january and now he's saying march 1st um it just needs to be done um the short-term rentals have gone gone out of control and right now we are in a we're in an emergency and we're in dire need and our people like you said they're leaving the island every day and so something needs to be done quick and so for lahana strong our our we're, our ask is for either the mayor or the governor to drop the hammer and do a moratorium on the 2,200 units um, in West Maui. So they are unpermitted, but they're operating legally under an exemption. And the mayor and the governor both have the power under this emergency proclamation right now to to easily convert those over and... Um, it would be in Lahaina where people want to stay because right now when they are getting like long-term housing through the FEMA direct lease, they're being moved to Haiku, which is over an hour away. They're going to Kula, Kihei, away from their families, their friends, their jobs, and the kids' schools. So mm. we really want this, this, um, these 2,200 units in West Maui. Um, we have really good response from some of the county council members, but it's just it gets harder once we start going up to the mayor and the, the governor. What was the status of housing on Maui before the fire? We were already in a major housing crisis before the fire. Um, seeing, you know, people on social media saying they have no housing, they don't know where to go, even friends and families saying they have to they have to move and the prices are so high. Um, and, you know, the Lahaina, just, just the Lahaina wildfire, that, that put 11,000 11, more people out of housing. Mm. So... Like I said, now we're in a state of emergency. We have, I don't want to say we have nothing left, but we have no long-term housing left. And that's why we really need the short-term rentals to convert over. And we're not asking for forever at this point. We're asking to, you know, even Tamara Paulton, she said six months, just give us six months and you can enjoy your place the other six months. But, you know, even up to two years, people just don't realize that the fire victims right now the amount of uncertainty they're living in every single day. If if short-term rental owners can do this, they would be doing a great service and blessing these families just with that that certainty and sense of home for the time being. It's devastating to think that so many Hawaiians have no choice but to leave the islands to go to the mainland. Uh, the New York Times actually had a piece back in, let's see here, in May, Uh, There's Mm -hmm. no ocean in sight, but many Hawaiians are making Las Vegas their home. Recent census data showed that more Native Hawaiians now live outside of Hawaii than in Hawaii. And this was true before these fires. So Mm -hmm. can you talk about more about this, Elena? And and what does this mean for Hawaii and Hawaii's future? Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier we're in a water crisis, but as as Jordan you know, stated we're also in a housing crisis, especially so in Lahaina. And Hawaii's plantation history of settler colonialism and plantation lands and waters being converted to luxury subdivisions, you know, aren't being used to house residents. These are vacation homes. These are second homes. These are Airbnbs that contribute not only to the high cost of living that has priced many Native Hawaiians out of Hawaii, um, but local people just can't compete with the the all cash offers for housing from from non-locals and you know as it is we Hawaii has the highest cost of living and or one of the highest cost of living um, in the country 
and our salaries aren't comparable to what our counterparts on the continent are making. And so with this this insatiable demand for housing, you know, locals are, are just getting priced out of paradise. You're in Honolulu, right? Yes. Right. And so there, the, the housing is so incredibly expensive. Yeah. No, I, you know, I don't have the the most up-to-date stats on me, but like the median home is over a million dollars. And I'm from, um, you know, a a small community on the windward side of the island of Oahu, and you can't find a single family home for less than a million. Mm. And, you know, when anything does go on the market that's under that, um, they're generally scooped up by all cash offers that are not coming from local people. And, and Elena, there were so many stories about how very wealthy Californians moved to the islands during COVID because in many cases, the school, some of the private schools stayed open and they wanted their kids to be in school. And so they bought million dollar condos and moved to the islands. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that just exacerbates the, the housing crisis that, you know, local families and, you know, Native Hawaiian communities, you know, specifically are, are enduring. Jordan, what would you add, given that more Native Hawaiians now live outside of Hawaii than in Hawaii? What does this mean for Hawaii and its future? You know, that's a really good question. I just truly believe that we should be the, you know, we should continue to be the people of this place. And when there are issues, like you say, you know, Mauna Kea, where we're fighting the telescope or, you know, Red Hill, we're fighting the contamination of the water. You know, now we're, we're fighting housing and crisis in the Haino because, you know, water, it's, it kind of makes it a lot harder because it's, you know, they stay, they stay plugged in from wherever they ended up moving to. But sometimes we really need people boots on the ground. You know, we need them to show up and we need to show numbers. And it's a little bit harder that they're not here with us. So if I feel like it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to fight these good fights that, you know, Um, Elena and I are fighting every day when so much of our people are having to move off island. What are you hearing from people on other islands who are dealing with similar issues? Are you finding, Jordan, that there's a lot of solidarity happening now as a result of all of these? I mean, it's nothing new, of course, but is there Mm -hmm. more solidarity happening now because of of the fire and these issues? Oh, most definitely. Um, Lahana Strong, people reach out to us every single day just saying like, you know, we're waiting for your kahel, which means like the call. We're waiting for your folks kahel and what you guys want to do. What's next? You know, um, I really feel that Hawaii, um, all of Hawaii is really watching what happened to Lahaina and they're watching how we come out of this. So with with the way we're moving as Lahaina Strong and I want to say even just as a Lahaina community, I'm really hoping that we're we're creating a blueprint to stand up against corruption, you know, stand strong, push for what we really want as local people and, and get it done. And so we're getting a really good, um, getting really good feedback from other islands. And they're just saying, whenever you guys are ready, let us know and we'll stand with you guys and we'll fight with you guys. And even, you know, the other half of Lahana Strong, they went to Oahu and were at the legislation and they were met with, with hundreds of people from Oahu just standing in solidarity. So mm-hmm. they're ready. And I feel like, like Elena said, with Mauna Kea, that really ignited the Lahui, the Ohana. And um, with this problem, they've seen the hurt, they've seen the anguish, and they're just ready to fight alongside us. Hmm. Final thoughts from both of you, given that so many people see Hawaii as paradise, and of course you could argue, yes, it is, but it's so much more than just paradise. What do you want people to know about your home? Elena, uh, we have we have about a minute left. Yeah, you know, I think um, especially for, you know, those of us of, of Native Hawaiian descent, you know, Hawaii is a very special place. Um, it is, you know, literally part of our, our genealogy. And so, you know, we, we've always been a people of aloha where, you know, we want to share that aloha with the world. But at the same time, you know, we are in a place where, we're in a water crisis, a housing crisis. You know, we have an abundance of land issues. And, um, you know, I think coming to, to Hawaii with the right intentions of not burdening the community, but supporting the community is, um, you know, I think most important. And Jordan, what would you add? 
Same, Elena, she answered that beautifully. Same thing. Um, I would just say, please be very aware of what we're going through. Um, give us grace. And, you know, even like I said, get connected. Um, talk with us locals. See what else we're dealing with. And if, you know, you can bring anything to the table, we're all ears. Um, a lot of people, they say, you know, I love Hawaii. I love Hawaii. But loving Hawaii is more than just sitting at the pool and ordering a Mai Tai. You know, loving Hawaii is loving its people, housing its people when they're in dire need. Um, so we really need those types of people coming and I'm, you know, we're ready with open arms to accept them. Jordan Rui Das founded Lahaina Strong in 2018 after another wildfire burned 21 homes in Lahaina. Lahaina Strong plans to stay on the beach until lawmakers come up with long-term housing solutions for people displaced by the Lahaina fires. They're calling on Maui Mayor Richard Bissen to convert short-term rental properties into long-term housing. So move the tourists out of the short-term rentals into hotels and move those who lost everything into stable housing. Elena Bryant is a Native Hawaiian attorney with Earth Justice. In August, she wrote a piece called How Maui's Wildfire Sparked a Disaster Capitalist Power Grab for Hawaii's Public Water. You can find the piece at yourcallradio.org. Jordan and Elena, thank you so much for your important work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You can find a number of other stories about what is happening in Lahaina and Hawaii at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Savannah Harriman Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And I hope you can join us for our media roundtable tomorrow. We will discuss Democracy on Trial, a new frontline documentary that examines the roots of the historical criminal cases against Donald Trump, stemming from his 2020 election loss and his lies. It also focuses on Rudy Giuliani and Trump making life hell for election workers. Then we'll talk about the bipartisan border bill. Biden supporting that. Republicans, again, just voted it down yesterday. We'll also talk about the Republican Party's racist rhetoric against immigrants. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at kalw.org. Also, it's so important to remember the March election. We will be choosing our next senator to replace Senator Feinstein. The top two vote getters in early March will then be on the ballot in November. We are reaching out to the Democrats. We're hoping to get all three of them on the show. If you have any questions for them, you can email us, your call at kalw.org, and you have until February 20th to register to vote. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 